You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. The Isles, the projectionist, that's Micha. I'm here with Yitzchak Kowakow. You want to start today uh, memorializing and telling our listeners about uh, the incredible life and work of Bert I. Gordon uh, and his accomplishments uh, as a director, a writer, a producer, uh, and... Special effects man. <laughs> yes. So tell us a little bit, uh, give us the thumbnail sketch here, uh, and, and why we should take note of his passing. Event, uh, since I'm a child, I've had an appreciation for his films. It was, you know, when I think probably the first one I saw was Beginning of the End, which I think was the third movie that he directed. It had Peter Graves, who's always a favorite of mine. We talked about Peter Graves. Okay, we talked about the uh, well, a man of extreme of of great range, indeed. <laughs> so uh, I I just remember on AMC seeing this movie, beginning of the end, with giant grasshoppers. Uh, you were introduced to Bert Gordon's oeuvre from the film "The Beginning of the End," which yes. is. Uh, that's that's probably my favorite of his movies. It might might not be his best work, but it's something that's uh, certainly an entertaining little movie. It's not, uh, you know. It, yeah, let me read. Let me read the synopsis here. That there's a reporter, a military officer, and a scientist, and they discover the complete destruction of a small town that was caused by giant grasshoppers that were accidentally enlarged by the scientists experimenting with radioactive material at a nearby agricultural research project. So um, what what Bert does over here, and of course, as you mentioned, it has the incomparable Peter Graves as Dr. Wainwright. He He's the scientist, I see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 he and, delivers, and he delivers, he delivers one line that was later uh, in the movie with um, called Matt. There was a movie in 1993, Matinee, that uh, Joe Dante made with uh, with John with John Goodman, 
and he says, you know, you can't. And they they you they made a lot of references to a lot of these old movies. And one of the lines was from that: you you can't drop an atom bomb on Chicago. That was uh, that was mm. <laughs> written by written by one of our tribe. Fred Freeberger was the was the writer on that film. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it really pushed his, you know, it pushed his creative juices to the brink to come up with this plot. Um, and I think what you were so, uh, I guess, enraptured by was the the way the grasshoppers were were shot. I mean, basically, he just you know did close ups of regular grasshoppers, right? Right, right. And it was actually a very interesting story of how he had to get permission to have these particular species of grasshoppers. He was only allowed to have males in order to make sure that there wasn't some kind of a invasion of locusts all over all over the wherever they were filming this movie. Uh, but I felt that having real animals looked more real. Like I know that them, which uh, this movie obviously was inspired by at some, at some level was, you know, a very successful movie that was, I guess, three years earlier. And even you look at the poster and it's kind of ripping off the poster for them. Uh, that movie had it was you know much more critically acclaimed and it had these large puppets for giant ants and somehow to me uh, I thought seeing actual grasshoppers you know made to look big really you know was something that was more realistic in a sense than just yes, having but the, the question is how could he match puppets. it how could he match it by the double exposure onto the 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 buildings they were supposed to be climbing uh interacting with you know uh, with with the with the human actors I mean, it's always a question you know obviously yeah. how I mean, he he did it. he he learned the craft over the years because if you see you know his first movie which was someone that I'd seen many many times i mean eight of his movies were featured on mystery science theater 3000 mm-hmm. um and all of those uh, oh, Marco. Uh, <laughs> yeah, distinction. I don't know. <laughs> right, well, so, well, you you have the attack of you have the attack of the puppet people, of course, right? That was and, that he said was even though when we asked him at Monster Bash what his favorite movie was, he said all of them. But he wrote he writes in his autobiography that Attack of the Puppet People was to him one of his most interesting films. But there was no attack though. I, the, the attack of part was kind of I think just to sensationalize the title but there and uh, that had john agar right and john uh, agar was sort of even in the 50s john agar i think stood a little bit above um uh, in terms of a known personality uh than the peter graves uh again the thing is the trick photography um they basically what happens is very similar to some of the special effects in the incredible shrinking man where you have uh everybody is 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 uh, shrunk to a diminutive size right, right. and then you and then you basically yeah, I mean, this, was, this was you know again just like beginning of the end was was to, was a i wouldn't say a ripoff but it was you know uh to cash in on the success of them and then so then uh he and and earth versus the spider was probably to cash in on the success of tarantula which mm-hmm. did use a real tarantula and then uh and now the attack of the puppet people was to cash in on the success of the incredible shrinking man, uh, also which also used a real tarantula. Um, so you, yeah. you know you had all, you know he he knew he knew what he was working on. He knew he he knew what worked, what was popular, 
and he used that, you know, he said, you know, he, he, he described that it was since he was a small child, he was interested in movies, going to the movies, making his own, you know, little movies on a 16 millimeter camera and then going on. And I think that's kind of what drew me in. It's like, oh, maybe I, when I was a little kid, I was like, maybe I could do something like this. Maybe I could, uh, you know, uh, you know, get, get some of my, my pet iguana and, and, and take pictures with some toys and, and make it look like, and I never had the camera that I could do that, but I remember I had a still camera. One of the things we, you know, I think in fifth grade or sixth grade, we were being taught how to develop pictures and stuff. And I took a picture of a, a bullfrog next to a, a toy car or something and developed That's, that. No, no, it's interesting, of course, he, you know, he comes back, you know, even in the seventies where, you know, there clearly had been 20 years, I suppose, of technological advancements in, uh, in 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 producing monster flicks, you have Empire of the Ants, right? Where right. And, and Food of the Gods. He he went back to that same to that same style again. Meaning, throughout the '60s, he went away more from the monster movies. He really only made the Village of the Giants. Maybe could be, which was also based on Food of the Gods. Maybe could be not real. It's more of a comedy. <laughs> But mostly he he did the supernatural thrillers and he did some other uh, you know action and adventure movies and went and away uh, and a number of X rated films he decided to make as well. Um, yeah. I think we should. I know we're not trying to uh, give him a a Jewish eulogy, but it sounds like he was very very active. Um, it sounds like he never thought of himself as any great auteur or as making any important statements he wanted to give people uh, entertainment and gave you know, that, that, that's the one thing that's interesting about him because you know I, I he's kind of somewhat overshadowed you know by ed wood and roger corman who's roger corman's still around uh but you know i think roger corman of all of them is, you know sometimes trying to make statements here and there i mean the the, the only statement possibly that i've seen in any of his films was in the beginning of the end that here you had the scientist trying to save the world with, with some technology that wound up, you know, going awry. But more than that, it was, you know, he really wasn't making any statements, but he worked with big people. He worked with Orson Welles. He worked with Kirk Douglas. He worked, uh, actually, Kirk Douglas, he worked with him making a commercial um, for, uh, that was really- Father, uh, a child in his second marriage. I don't, I don't think in his second marriage, his children are Jewish. Uh, Eva Marie Markelstrofer, but his first wife, Flora, uh, worked and, with him. She was she was she helped him out with a lot of special effects. She's credited in a lot of his movies as a. Right. As and a I, of course, actor. knew when you mentioned to me Susan Gordon, and we did a brief look, you know, right before we started recording. Of course, I remembered her uh, in one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes with J. Pat O'Malley, The Fugitive, um, where you know this caretaker old guy. Uh, that's you know somehow helping these kids. I think in the orphanage. Um, turns out that uh, he's he's a intergalactic space alien that is being chased. Uh, I think it's a Charles Beaumont special, and uh, she is cute as a button, and uh, she was very very uh, charming. Uh, and and you, you we mentioned the she actually is sort of the heroine of the of the attack of the yeah, puppet people. Yeah, and it was an accident that they had someone else casted for the role who couldn't make it, so then he just. He brought his daughter Susan in to to cover for that, and uh, and she has quite a little bit of a, a career. Um, yeah, she, she worked with Danny Kay. She worked with. Unfortunately, she passed away 
uh, more than a decade before her father. Um, and she, you know, I don't know how close they were, but they, it, it, he writes in his, his autobiography that in 2006, he came to our favorite convention, Monster Bash, which I, I had met him after that. I met him at, at, I think, the last Monster Bash he came to. Um, but he, he mentioned that, you know, what it meant to him to spend that time with his daughter at the convention. And like we mentioned, she was, she was a, a very chashiva from, from person, uh, you know, who really did, did a lot for Yiddishkeit, did a lot for Kali Israel, her with her husband together, first in Japan. They were, they were pretty much the, the Welcome. leaders of the from community in, in Tokyo. And then they settled in Teaneck, um, you know, close to 40 years ago and they really um were helped, it seems like it a helped, lot of helped really spawn the uh, teaneck into this uh, into the mecca of yeah. modern orthodox judaism that it is today yeah pretty uh, pretty much three or four of the shuls that are big shuls now in teaneck started in their basement yeah well look you know look if you're in hollywood and if you've been making films i guess uh, you are you. You might pick up the bug to think big. <laughs> bug and big is the main thing here, and she definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah, she definitely was. Uh, I guess she took that leadership role that a, a director, producer, writer like her dad uh, modeled for her. Whether she was close to him or not, though, we can only speculate. But again, but he, he she, I, I think Monster Bash brought them back together before she passed away. He was. Yes, he, he but, writes that he's thankful to Ron Adams for. For bringing them together for that uh, for that event, and that was yeah, well, she was definitely very active in in, in child roles uh, in Ben Casey and as well and uh, and you know in My Three Sons, she actually uh, came in. I think she actually played four different parts in um, in My Three Sons, um, and uh, I think that you know that is a great legacy. Really, the, it's it's unfortunate that he had to see her pass away before him. But it sounds like, as he says in one of his quotes, he says, look, I want the people to scream when the spider shows up. That's that's yeah. the Hana that he has. And yeah, and he, a, he, you know, a lot of his movies became very, you know, the one scene in Earth versus a spider where the, there's the, the spider attacks the city, the little town that he's attacking. And then uh, the woman gets her dress caught in the in the car door. And she can't get out. That became that was used in many commercials and, and all kinds of things. It really became an iconic scene you know he was he was able to with very little accomplish a lot he he learned how to to direct he learned to, how to you know he he writes about working with um with orson wells about how you know orson wells's uh agent you know was warning him you know be you know don't you know don't mention citizen kane and don't work him too hard he doesn't show up before 10 a.m he doesn't and he doesn't leave after 4 p.m and uh but he he said that uh, wells you know was so impressed with just how nice he was and everything that he wound up in the end uh you know saying you know don't worry what my agent says whenever you need me i'm here and they worked well together, you know, and, um, and so tell me, it's a, listen, obviously, you know, all of our listeners can check Bird out on IMDb and, and find um, uh, films. What would you say if there's going to be one, your favorite Bert Gordon film, which one would it be? Like, like I said, my favorite is definitely beginning of the end, but all of his stuff from the fifties are my favorites. You know, that's, that's really, you know, in, in, you know, inclu including the, 
Okay. Yeah, you know, including King Dinosaur, which was his first director directing film, which, you know, uh, Puppet People is really a lot of fun. It's different. Uh, Earth versus Fire, the, the Amazing Colossal Man, you know, and, and the sequel, War of the Colossal Beast. Those are both some of probably his most uh, successful movies of the 50s. The Cyclops is another favorite because it has... Uh, it has Lon Chaney Jr. He enjoyed, he said, you know, how well nice it was working with, with Chaney. Uh, and also it ha also has all the big monsters. I like that one. It's, that one's a little bit harder to find. But one thing I like about that one is that it has much, many more different monsters, whereas most of his movies kind of just had one thing. That one had like, you know, I don't know, five or six or seven different animals that he you know that he uh, was able to use in that in that movie you know the the plot isn't maybe that great but the the special effects are just fun there's just something to me about seeing those big lizards and things and running well around. as you said i think he has the uh distinction although this is not a program i'm that familiar with you've mentioned a number of times here on our show mystery science theater i think his films have been shown more than any on mystery science theater which shows you i guess that you can have fun making fun of them as well uh greatest film of all time um even above the searchers which we've talked about here is singing in the rain uh stanley donan and gene kelly's uh musical which i was talking to my good friend uh, Jakob friedman and we're talking about standing the test of time. And uh, he posited to me that films like The Godfather, um, even Bonnie and Clyde and others, uh, he even uh, mentioned that you know this year's Academy Award winner, which I happen to have seen uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. He believed that these films in many ways uh, speak about their time, speak about that moment, capture for people years from now, or now even looking at those films as iconic, indicative of, what was the issues and what messages uh, Hollywood or the directors wanted to send out. But he said there's certain films that, you know, did not win Oscars necessarily, um, but hold up incredibly well. And he mentioned to me that he took his young children to see Singing in the Rain and they were mesmerized. They loved it. Um, and I, I, I've, I've been working through a bout of uh, uh, some difficult aches and pains and stuff. And, um, inability to sleep. I said, well, you know what? Uh, let me watch a little bit of Singing in the Rain. I've seen it probably about 20 times. And um, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about, and I have some observations. I don't know if you've seen a film that many believe is the greatest Hollywood musical. I, I would say, uh, and I know Yitzchak, you're not a fan of musicals. Uh, they don't really make sense to you. Uh, but as someone as, when I was Shlomi's age, I couldn't get enough of them. And I would imagine myself um, doing the dance steps and being involved with that full orchestra, uh, whether it was MGM or Warner's, whoever was behind it and, you know, uh, sliding and slipping and moving and pirouetting and the ballet moves and perhaps even uh, fantasizing of the dance partners that I might have, whether they be Sid Charisse or Ginger Rogers. Um the musicals and part of what singing in the rain uh, is is the orange is the origin story of musicals and uh to basically tell over the obvious uh you know the freed unit and mgm uh that was headed by arthur freed freed had 
uh, control and access to a number of songs that he had written together with his partner. And these songs were prominent, including Singing in the Rain and others throughout the early talkie era. What the idea was that these songs could now, in beautiful Technicolor, uh, be staged in some in different numbers using all these songs like Good Morning and um, and For You, Singing in the Rain, of course, and putting them together in some sort of cohesive plot. And this, of course, took Comden and Green, Adolf Comden and, 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 and uh, Betty Arthur Freed uh, tapping this, the incredible team of Betty Comden and Adolf Green, uh, tried to create some sort of plot structure. And you would say it's all just an excuse to get the songs done and the numbers happening. But there might be something a little bit stronger there than that. Um, and what they came up with was, why don't we have the drama of the film be about the move from silent films to talkies? And who was able to make the transition and who could not make the transition and why they wouldn't be able to make the transition, but do it in a sort of a, a fun sort of way. You're not necessarily mentioning uh, the type of silent actors who we've talked about Yitzchak, of course, who went into decline and were uh, shunted out of the studio because of the sort of disdain everyone had for the craft of many of the silent experts and silent masters. This film did not have that type of pathos in it. It wasn't meant uh, to be melancholy. Let me say it again. It was meant to be a light satire of what Hollywood was. And I do believe that there was probably uh, certain characters in the film, uh, especially, you know, the Lena character, Lena Lamont, who was really played to the hilt by Gene Hagen. Gene Hagen plays plays her as a silly, vindictive, um, uh, dumb blonde from New York. And she does a great job. Uh, I would say that, you know, you even get a little bit of sympathy for her at the end. Uh, Gene Hagen's character was the only character that was uh, nominated for an Academy Award in this film. She didn't win. Uh, but she, her, if you look at the film again, and I've seen it so many times, but watching it again, her performance is really a great standout. She is the uh, silent screen star who you think is a bubblehead, but realizes as this move is happening that that her role is in peril. It turns out that you know the idea is that the only way she's going to survive is if somebody is going to lip sync for her, and there's going to have to be someone else's voice singing and speaking for her. But she still has the presence and the adulation of a community. And now that she's making the turn into talkies, um, she wants to keep holding on to that. There's something in a way um, that isn't pernicious an evil about her you you really feel for her uh and and you realize that in a way part of the reason why she is who she is is because of how she's been used by the nascent studios and trying to create their early stars of silent film and how much they used the physical presence and the looks and the uh, the over-affected mannerisms 
uh, part of what the the film, uh, the criticism the film laces is that much of the silent era, there was mugging. It wasn't true acting. It was more like paintings coming to life. And therefore, uh, it wasn't really truly uh, relatable in many ways. Or maybe perhaps it was. Uh, The film doesn't really give much credit to what was happening uh, in terms of the effectiveness of the silent actors. Uh, it, it, it pays homage to, to the stunt work that was being done that was incredible and, of course, death-defying at the time. And you know, the, the film, as my friend Yako Friedman says, he thinks it's really about the fact that what survived into the talking era and thrived was the movement. Obviously, masters that we mentioned before, like Keaton and Lloyd and Chaplin, were able to fill the screen with these frenetic images that were greater than some of the stilted dialogue. But the reason that the talkies that thrived were the talkies that were able to tap for the first time dancing, that movement that was not necessarily the type of dairy dairy do of Douglas Fairbanks and others, but actually that movement fine-tuned, honed into numbers that can now be listened to. And that's why, you know, the, the 30s uh, created these stars like Fred Astaire. Um, and, and, and really the film, uh, although Gene Kelly was really after that period, he really only shows up in the in the forties, but the the film is in a way a testament to to Gene Kelly himself. Uh, it was uh, Gene Kelly had directed the film together with Stanley Donen, but as my friend Yako Freeman pointed out to me in a conversation that we had yesterday, he believes that Kelly was never shy about pushing his own ideas onto what a film should be. And it's clear to him that even in earlier films, whether it's Anchors Away or others, that Kelly was probably uh, in many ways uh, suggesting very strongly to whatever director was officially credited how the film should look. Uh, Now, both of these men, and we talk about Astaire and Kelly, uh, Astaire made a film uh, a year or so later than Singing in the Rain uh, called The Bandwagon. And Astaire made that film, The Bandwagon, which many feel is also the apex or the greatest of the Hollywood musicals. And that's so you really have Kelly and Astaire uh, in, you know, possibly their greatest. Many people will say is one of the greatest musicals of all time. You have others who will throw in with Singing in the Rain. And the difference might be between these two men. Astaire was incomparable in how he was able to move. Uh, He, in many ways, is more fluid and more inventive than Kelly. Uh, But Kelly, somehow, as my friend Yaakov pointed out, you can't keep your eyes off of him. He's got a certain acrobatic power. And even in his, when when he's doing standard dance moves, he encourages the complete embracing of the film, uh, whereas you know, you know, you know, Fred Astaire, his, uh, his, he's so graceful, he's so 
powerful in terms of the emotion that seems to come out of him as a dancer. Um, and Kelly is really more like a uh, like a roller coaster ride. And yet Kelly is, uh, you know, his, uh, what he does, I think, swoops you up in memory more. It's hard to explain. Uh, It's almost like, I wish I could dance like a stair. But Kelly sort of took me on a dance with him. And I think that's what you see. Uh, One of the things I did when I was watching it was I went back to the screenplay of that survives and of course screenplays are always skeletal in many ways or sometimes they're overdone with too many details that the director realizes they needed to cut for time for time reasons and i looked at the screenplay description of the famous dance scene in the rain that that kelly uh does which is so many people have seen even yitzchuk has seen uh, that clip of him actually jumping into the puddles and the the shooting screenplay of it is so sparse that you realize that what kelly came up with and you know it isn't a deep idea but it's really the idea of having spirit love confidence despite everything that's going on around you. I'm singing in the rain, right? Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Bring on the rain. There's a smile on my face, right? I'll walk down the rain with a happy refrain, right? Now, even though things are negative, even though there's many, many things to worry about, there might be health and other issues. There might be war that was happening other places, but there, I have an, a, a positivity which is beyond. And that's part of the reason why we go to the movies, right? We go to the movies to escape despite everything else. And even though we cannot nudge out completely that rain that's everywhere, (laughs) we're going to keep on singing. Uh, And perhaps even singing despite and because of the difficulties. And Kelly does that in that number. Because as the rain is coming down, and he, he sort of is a little, has some trepidation, but as he closes the umbrella, as he uh, waltzes around the gutter spout where you have not only the drops, but you have the rain that is gathered and is coming down in, in, in molten lava-like intensity. At first, Kelly is perhaps wants to avoid it. But as you see the scene, you see he actually decides to go straight into it and he lets it fall totally on his face. Um, and even you know the, the penultimate moments when he is jumping into the puddle uh, and, and stomping all the while keeping uh, the rhythm going really is, is is really capturing the heart of what the song is. Uh, if you go back to some of the early versions of Singing in the Rain, you know, you, you can see in some of the Busby Berkeley uh, portrayals, the, the, the song is sung by a, a whole chorus and they're singing it extremely quick. They're, they're singing it fast. The raindrops are coming. Uh, the beautiful dancing girls are showing their legs. But Kelly really, I believe, and I give him credit despite his egotistical manner and other things uh, that many people have noted, he 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 touched it up and developed it, and I think there was something there that that uh, uh, 
reminded me why when I was a little boy, I would run around in the rain singing the same song. Uh, you know, and, and my neighbors would complain, you know, they would call my parents and say, why is your son rocking around our backyard? Uh, you know, sing- of course, I knew it was Debbie Reynolds, almost her first star turn. And uh, she was only 19 years old. Um, I was turned off by the relationship between Debbie and Gene Kelly. First of all, the age gap is obvious. And secondly, they they're just it doesn't just the the it's posited as a real relationship versus the Gene Hagen relationship that he has, which is only something that the studio movie magazines are trying to develop. But there really is no romance there. And this is a, a true romance that you know they meet cute. He's jumping off of a streetcar. He lands in her car, and somehow that they magically come together they they're in that rom-com like moment on 25th viewing i don't buy it um there's just something there where and maybe part of it is kelly's inability to emote you always sense he's waiting for the line to come for him to do his shtick afterwards he, he he's never a, a real listener uh, stare i think had that capability in, in, in a much greater way but it isn't just Kelly's uh, egotism or vanity. I, I really believe there's just, it's just the actor and actresses don't really get along in the way they should. They're supposed to be a true, loving, growing relationship as opposed to the fantasy, artificial one of him and, 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 and Lena, Gene Hagen slash Lena Lamont. And I, I really feel that, you know, Debbie Reynolds was, in a way, um, not served as well uh, in this film. She said it was the hardest thing she did besides childbirth uh, because it took hours and hours you know, to film things. And she had to learn how to match the type of dancing moves of not only Gene Kelly, but you know, we have to mention, and this, of course, I've noticed always is Donald O'Connor. Now, Donald O'Connor, of course, had a, a, a very strong career in the 1950s, um, and he was really active into the 60s and 70s as well. And if you watch the film and you watch their dancing, you can see that O'Connor can match Kelly's moves. Not only can he match them, in many ways, he's even more fluid. Um, maybe it's because he's, he's not burdened by that incredible uh, upper body torso that Kelly had. He's much more lithe, more stair-like. Um, I should mention, though, that, you know, the 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 Kelly was extremely gracious in giving O'Connor the make him laugh, which, you know, is one of is considered one of the most incredible. uh, It almost looks like it was done in a single take. Uh, Supposedly he spent four weeks in the hospital after he uh, did this. You know, the the type of dancing on the walls and crashing through walls and fighting with the with the, you know, with the with the with the with the mannequin, all that type of stuff that O'Connor did, which really most people would say has not been matched. I think even Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd would have stood up and applauded for 10, 15 minutes uh, for what Donald O'Connor was able to do. Um, There is a. um, I also had an appreciation this time uh, for Millard Mitchell. I talked about Millard Mitchell before. He was the uh, grumpy um, and uh, realistic uh, colonel in a foreign affair. He was also uh, uh, 
he was also Richard Conti's erstwhile friend in Thieves Highway. And in this film, he plays the head of the studio. And although his part is not necessarily showy, um, I, I, knowing his career and knowing that he was meant to be an everyman and to represent us all and an inherently good person, uh, I, I think uh, he, he ably abets of the film in a way that I didn't notice up and up until up up until this viewing, um, especially at the very end when he finally realizes that he's not going to let uh, his star hold him hostage, uh, and even though it might mean some threat to him as the head of the studio, so there is a little bit of a growth arc. Miller Mitchell gets he's like the Harvona; he gets an honorable mention. Zohar Latov. Um, uh, why is the film uh, on number 10 on Sight and Sound? Why is it considered above so many, many other important films? Is it, be- is it because it's, sh- is, is, is it shallow? Um, is, is, uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I, 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 I believe that it's, it's almost like it, it goes down like candy. And yet there's something that you sense when you swallow it. I think what you're what you're sensing is this is going to explain to you why you are coming to film. This is going to somehow explain that even though it it goes through great lengths to expose the type of shtick that movies were made from, it punctures the the, the the wall of the soundstage. It makes you see that there's lip syncing happening. It makes you uh, it, it, you you it's it 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 openly says yes. So much of what your fascination is really the tabloids wanting to work together with the studios uh, to build interest. And yes. Uh, the the it, it, it isn't it doesn't come together in the snap of a finger the way you think it is it's a lot of hard drudgery work till it happens and yet here's the final product i don't mind showing you some of the kitchen i don't mind showing you the the way the meat looks chopped because you're still going to love this product I don't have to hide behind the, you know, the 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 fiction of as if we snapped our fingers. Hey, let's put on a show, and it's already here. I think that's part of why the film has a lasting power. And even if the type of films you're going to are Avatar or Top Gun or other films that that and 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 you, and, and, and you hate musicals <laughs> because it doesn't make any sense to you. This film is a joyful, uh, a joyful celebration of the movies themselves, and there's enough of a plot. There's enough of a story. There's enough of a of of a, a aspect of drama, or at least uh, and comedy together, that it works. Um, I think that one of the most overlooked. Uh, parts of the film for many people is when the silent actors need to 
be, go into the talkies, all of them get a uh, crash course in elocution. And uh, of course, Gene Hagen's character, uh, it's, it's, it's really quite uh, hilarious, her attempts of saying words perfectly and properly, how she can't, for the life of her, ever uh, expunge herself of the type of grub uh, expressions that she was raised with. But even seeing Kelly having to go through it, and Comden and Green wrote a song, especially for that, for this film, which is called, you know, Moses Supposes. Um, and uh, it, <laughs> again, you know, it, it really, in a way, um, sort of uh, you know, takes a wonderfully uh, cute punch at, uh, you know, elocution in general about your favorite film, The Red Shoes. And um, it, it doesn't have anywhere of the drama or the, the, the quality of acting or the play within a play of, of The Red Shoes, but it does have a, a similar part. Um, as you know, there's the Broadway melody part of the film. Um, the, 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 the piece of struggle that the film deals with is that uh, they've made a costume drama that was sort of set, I'm sorry, that was called The Dueling Cavalier, and it, it, it's so terrible that they have to turn it into a musical called The Dancing Cavalier. And uh, they come up with a... It's starting to remind me of Attack of the Puppet People. I'm going to have to go back to that when you're done. They, they come up with an idea to change it into a musical, but it's actually a musical in a flashback that it starts in a modern era and a sandbag hits the head of the, of the main character who was reading A Tale of Two Cities and imagines a musical based on the French Revolution. But there's a modern part of the film too. And of course, this was an excuse, just like uh, in uh, the, the film A Star is Born, which was made a number a couple of years later, there's the scene Born in a Trunk where, um, uh, where Judy Garland uh, shows her husband, uh, James Mason, Norman Maine, in the film, uh, the, what they are doing, uh, a special part of this new film. In the same way, in the middle of this Singing in the Rain, which really goes nowhere in terms of advancing the plot, Kelly does a, uh, a, a, a number that he obviously directed along with Stanley Donan uh, about a young hoofer who comes to New York, uh, gets involved with uh, you know many George Raft lookalikes who are all uh, who are all flipping their coins and a femme fatale for the ages um, and really in a way that the censors uh, had a very oh, a very difficult time letting the letting that section go where Kelly and Sid Charisse engage in just this incredible series of types of dancing. Uh, that really highlight the power uh, of Sid Charisse. Now, Sid Charisse uh, was always dubbed in her singing, but she never had to be dubbed for her dancing. She really was clearly, as in the bandwagon, who she's with Astaire, uh, Sid Charisse was, in a way, um, uh, the the incredible um, uh, synthesis of ballet style with uh modern tap and other types of dancing 
again, not like Ann Miller, who was like a, a like like a, a top and a power, but Sid Charisse, uh was able to have the type of control that the type of thing that Astaire uh, controlled himself in the same way. So she's there for this fifteen minute piece in the middle of the film, which is Ke- which is uh, Kelly's character describing what he believes would be a great scene. It probably never makes it into the final scene because it's displayed in a way that was totally impossible to have been done in 1929. It's the type of thing that only uh, the advancements of the of the two decades past that period were able to have such a scene happen. And, you know, uh, have Kelly uh, uh, describing it, well, he starts to, and then it fades into uh, this incredible dance number uh, with uh, mostly done in pantomime, mostly, right? Um, it, it really is a uh, a piece that I always believed, but I always thought, what is it doing here? It really, I, and yet watching it again, I realize, you know, what was happening. This was a, a means to sort of, at that point, dangle in front of the 1951 audience, we can still do this. There are still places that this medium can go to. And uh, it, it built on the principles of the past, built on Busby Berkeley and others. There's things that we can do, especially uh, with what we can do in terms of the camera work and the technique that hopefully will keep you coming back. GM's poster film, even more than The Wizard of Oz, uh, (coughs) which a case can be made, similarly, is a film that has not lost its its edge. It's a film that people, I think, are still going back to see. Um, Whereas I think a number of, you know, the MGM greats, uh, whether it's Gone with the Wind, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, um, many of the things that they do, that, that, that they they award the the great bald statuette to, uh, I, I think most people, uh, even if they could watch it at double speed, wouldn't really take the time. So I I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, you know, if if you are suffering uh, from severe arthritis in your neck, like I was, and you're coming off a bad cold, and the type of medicine is keeping you up. You could do a lot worse than spending uh, the time um, uh, uh, watching and enjoying from beginning to end, uh, singing in the birth. Um, The uh, we all know that you know in the in 1972, as Nixon's plumbers were breaking into the Watergate Hotel in order to um, find uh, the type of goods that they needed uh, to somehow you know, bash George McGovern. Uh, we know that these guys were breaking into this hotel and Yitzchak informs me that one of the reasons why they weren't at the at the top of their game was because, I guess, as some of them were involved in the, in the actual nitty-gritty of the break-in, the lookout guy turned on the TV and it seems like it was a Burt Gordon special that he was watching. Yeah, was attack of the puppet people <laughs> right and he got so caught up in the uh in the story that he didn't notice 
that some of the alarms had gone off, right? Yeah, he didn't. He didn't see the police going. You know, we're we're right outside, and he was supposed to call them to warn them if if there were police outside, and instead he wanted to see how the movie ended. So that was. Uh, I see. Piece, so you know, had it not been for the, the lasting power of of Burt Gordon and Susan, I guess, because she was. <laughs> She 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 solved this, the the case in the end. Uh huh. So it could be it was had that not happened, it could be that uh, Nixon and all his nefariousness would never have been become public, and I guess we would have been treated to the complete second term of Tricky Dick. Probably would have been much better off, I think. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. There might not have been. You know, who knows? Maybe Reagan would never have uh, come to office. Yeah, hard, hard to say. Hard to say. Megan and Susan Gordon work. So <laughs> yes, I, I guess. I guess we would. We we might have. We might have Spiro Agnew on one of our one Gordon Liddy. Once she Gordon Liddy had to spend some time behind bars, he realized that the system needed to be a revamp. So that's it, my friends. Watch your step on the way out. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.